Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. The Yi Ching, or Book of Changes, is a 3,000-year-old Chinese divination text. By randomly generating a hexagram and consulting the section of the book devoted to it, the Yi Ching user gains insight into a given situation, its past, present, and future. In other words, the Yi Ching is an oracle. In the introduction to his wonderful translation of the text, Stephen Karcher writes, quote, Consulting an oracle and seeing yourself in terms of the symbols or magic spells it presents is a way of contacting what has been repressed in the creation of the modern world. It puts you back into what the ancients called the sea of soul by giving advice on attitudes and actions that lead to the experience of imaginative meaning. Oracular consultation insists on the importance of imagination. It is the heart of magic through which the living world speaks to you. The modern interest in alternative cultures and the old ways is a reflection of our need to recover this heart of magic, for it is the way our inner being speaks, thinks, and acts. The heart of magic. Some listeners here will remember our episode from two weeks ago on M. John Harrison's novel, The Course of the Heart. That too was all about recovering the heart of magic for the modern world. There, however, we met characters who were forced to create their own oracle, to spin a fiction that could serve as a conduit back to the heart. I can't help but wonder if they could have spared themselves the trouble simply by getting their hands on a copy of the Yi Ching. In my experience, and in Phil's too, the Yi Ching has proven to be the surest and safest road back to that strange place where inner and outer, past and future, chance and destiny become almost indistinguishable from one another. Maybe Phil's right when he says, in this episode, that the Yi Ching isn't a book so much as a process that is always happening, always unfolding. Crazy as that may sound, it feels perfectly true to me. The Yi Ching is like the horseshoe that the great physicist Niels Bohr hung above his door to ward off evil spirits. Asked by a guest if he believed in such things, Bohr allegedly responded, Nope, but I hear it works whether you believe in it or not. If only weird studies were like that too. Unfortunately, this show only works if people believe in it enough to support us on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful to all our patrons for keeping us going. If you haven't done so already, check out our Patreon page to see the kinds of perks even a modest contribution can get you, and visit the Weird Studies subreddit at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash weird studies. Enjoy the show. Insomnia. I fucking hate insomnia so much. It is like the main problem in my life. My life is great in so many ways, just not this one.
There's nothing I love more than sleep. Yeah. I love sleep. When I hear people say stuff like, you'll sleep when you're dead, like they're being all badass about it. Like uh, they're so hardworking and productive that they have contempt for sleep. Sleep is for the weak. How fucking stupid can you be? Sleep is so awesome. Yeah. I love sleep. I love it. I love sleep, too. Why doesn't it love me? You sound like Tyrion from Game of Thrones right now. (laughs) Does he express a love of sleep? No, just your tone, the way you were talking. It sounded like just I suddenly saw that wonderful character before me. Tyrion is the little person. Oh. Yeah. And who's like the closest thing to a sympathetic character in the whole show? Well, him and Lord Varys, the two advisors are the... Dude, you have to watch that show. No, I don't. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, I started you do. watching it. You have to stick th- to with it. It's fucking amazing. <sighs> until, know, the secre- until season seven, then it all nosedives. Well, you know, that doesn't give me a lot of motivation because it's just sort of like, oh, you should spend hours and hours and hours invested in this show only to not watch the end. Because it suddenly gets really bad. It starts, you can see where George R. R. Martin leaves the show in season three, I think. Uh-huh. And you can see that they still have two seasons to ride on the fumes of his presence. Mm. Uh, because he's a he's a, an amazing writer. Like, he an is, amazing actually. writer. I give it up to George R. R. Martin. Yeah. There's a novella he wrote called, um, oh shit, it's about... Uh, it's about a guy who is a sort of a sociopath or psychopath, I guess, somebody who has no empathy, who uh, the idea is that you can create a society of these sort of sentient ant creatures. And this guy obtains some of these creatures just for the purposes of torturing them, of having them fight each other and die in horrible ways for his amusement. And eventually the tables turn. Nice. Like good horror to me, this is one of my beefs with Lovecraft is he's constantly trying to tell you how horrified you should be by the stuff he's writing about. Whereas for me, what's really good in George R.R. Martin's writing, or as I sometimes like to refer to him, Jar Jar Martin. Um, and like Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> yeah, I get uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it, my son went through a huge George R.R. R. Martin phase and would always slur his words and it would come out Charger Martin. Whatever. Anyway, it doesn't Lisa, matter. winter is coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Jar Jar. <laughs> anyway, um, the fuck was I even saying? What you like about his writing as opposed to Lovecraft. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just, it's very simple, direct, yeah. plain, straightforward. Not strewn with adverbs. Not popping a sweat, trying to shake you up. No need to mention that the moon is gibbous. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) I don't have to think about that. I'm a busy man. (laughs) I actually feel like my, just, I don't know, basically not being into the style of writing in Lovecraft for me is a great shortcoming because I can recognize when I'm reading Lovecraft, like the imagination on that guy is second to none. Mm -hmm. I think somebody for whom the term febrile imagination was invented. Right. But I just don't dig the prose. It's a taste thing. Yeah. It's a taste thing. You're right. 
And fine. What I like, I respect that. And I think that's kind of key to be able to recognize that something works, even though you don't like it. Because obviously Lovecraft works. Uh, he wouldn't have exerted the influence he has if nothing was happening in those stories. I think there's a reason why he wrote that way. I think that he's, in one way, he's trying to emulate like Lord Dunsany and Edgar Allan Poe, but in a time where it's necessarily affected because he like, he doesn't live in that world where people write like that. There's some of that yeah. going on. But despite all that, I think that Graham Harmon got it right in his analysis of Lovecraft's prose style, saying that this was the way Lovecraft needed to write to communicate. Yeah the affects and percepts he wanted to communicate. I'm sure, I'm sure that's right. Yeah. And then, of course, it's a matter of taste. And, you know, yeah. Like, I'm not a huge fan of the Lamborghini Countach, but it's a good fucking car. But it's ostentatious as fuck, right? <laughs> but it's a good car. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, that's kind of my feeling about Lovecraft. I recognize that this is the the Lambo of weird horror writing. But Go uh, back to Jar Jar Martin. You're right, <laughs> what he's saying. He is so economical and communicates so much with so few words. And his dialogue is stellar, I find. Stellar dialogue. I did read the first book of his Game of Thrones series and thought That's it was the one absolute... called Game of Thrones. Yeah, and yeah. I thought it was terrific. Yeah. But actually, it's another taste thing. There's something about it. Maybe I'm just a... I don't know what it is. Uh... Well, you said it the first time. You said that it doesn't convey the enchantment you associate with fantasy or something like that, that it's too It feels too earthbound. Yeah, yeah, it feels right. too earthbound. Yes, uh, but I have but, something to say about that. I feel like that, <laughs> but you know, now that you're sort of quoting my own opinion back to me, it that sounds hollow. Like, I'm not sure that's even true. That might just be well, a Well, I'm misquoting you. That's not exactly what you said. What you said is that when you read fantasy, there's a particular kind of atmosphere that you dig, that you look for. And that that book seems, um, and again, I'm misquoting you again because I can't remember. Oh yeah, what exactly. I was talking about mood. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and it, it it deliberately undermines that. Yeah. But I would argue in the in the Jar Jar's defense that that's the whole point of Game of Thrones. It's a story about a world that magic has absconded from. Magic has left this world and now magic is coming back. And it's about how the world becomes again that fantasy world that we, mm. uh, I would argue for that. But I've only seen the show. I haven't read the books. So what the fuck do I know? And we're not talking about Jar Jar Martin anyways today. We're talking about the Yi Ching. What the fuck are we doing? <laughs> Actually, you know, I suspect what's going on is that I am terrified of talking about the I Ching and I will talk about almost anything else. I will talk about Jar Jar Martin. I will even pretend to like the Game of Thrones franchise. <laughs> and Lovecraft, yeah. And to Lovecraft, avoid. in order to put off the dread moment where I have to try and talk about this well, book that is not even a book. It's an entire universe. Yeah, but we don't, I mean, we can have modest goals here. We can start very <laughs> personal. Like, um, Okay, that's a good so, idea. Okay, so one of the, the decisions we made this year was to do more shows about the big, low-hanging fruit that we've tended to avoid. What were the ones we did this year? 2001. Uh, yep. What else did we do? We did another one recently that was on something real big. I can't remember what it was now. Fuck, I can't remember yeah. anything we've done in the last year. No. Uh, <laughs> just time has no meaning. Yeah. I'm actually having to go to our website to look up, like, what have we done lately? Um, 
I hate how, like, in the times in which we find ourselves, that time just has no meaning. Yeah. Somebody wrote on the Reddit, Cobalt Skink commented that living in the Rona times is sort of like being a little kid where, like, you never leave the house and one day just kind of blends into the other. There's no edges or sides to experience, all of which is to say I can't remember what we've done. Yeah, it's all Um, a blur. We did a couple of music shows. Oh, we did John Kill's Mothman Prophecies. Ah, How could that's it? the one I was thinking about. And we started cracking into the tarot. Right, we did the right, full card. Right. And the we did Bergson's Metaphysics. And uh, and yeah, in 2001. And Jung. And fucking um, McLuhan. We did McLuhan, too. So we've been on a tear for like the big... Um, big guys. You know, our big people. Yeah. So... The tarot is going to get 22 shows eventually, but the poor little I Ching gets one show. Or maybe it gets 64 shows. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you right now that's not going to happen. <laughs> because the difference between uh, the tarot and the I Ching, or one of the many differences, is that the tarot is so... And even there, we'll have to qualify what I'm saying because the tarot is so imagistic. And so maybe it's because we're Westerners and the tarot. Oh, just say what you were going to say. I I just find the I Ching is more abstract. Yes. Uh, I think that's hard to, it's, it's be hard to devote a show to, um, I don't know, uh, hexagram 41 decrease, you know, actually, I think it would be perfectly easy to devote a show to that. (laughs) It, we, we, we could. could do we could do it. I mean, yeah. the traditional the tradition of scholarship around the I Ching in East Asia has always viewed it as almost like a kind of fight. Now, this is, I think, like Joseph Needham or somebody, some not entirely sympathetic Western observer compared it to a filing cabinet where you have 64 different compartments and you put everything in the universe in one of those compartments. A slightly less invidious way of putting that is to say that if you really dig the I Ching, if you kind of go with the traditional beliefs around the I Ching, you say that whoever it was that originally created the I Ching basically figured out reality. Yes. Basically figured out all the deep structures, the deep patterning of reality and found a way to abstract it in 64 hexagrams. Um, Hexagrams are six line figures of alternating broken and solid lines. And each one of these hexagrams symbolizes a different elemental force of the universe. In fact, in this respect, the I Ching is very much like the tarot, because if you are likewise kind of a believer in the tarot and you believe as Alistair Crowley did, that the structure of the tarot is homologous to a reflection of the structure of the universe, then each one of those cards is itself a representation of a different force in the universe. And Crowley also uh, worked hard at aligning the tarot with the I Ching. That's right. He was, Crowley, being extraordinarily venturesome in his occult knowledge, was interested in the I Ching before uh, Richard Wilhelm published his apocal game-changing translation of the I Ching into German, which was then the German translation that was then translated into English um, by 
Carol Baines. Let's let's just note here, pause here to mention that I'm assuming we're going to be using the Wilhelm Baines translation as our kind of go-to today. Wilhelm is the German sinologist who originally translated the I Ching into German, and Baines is his English translator who translated his German translation into English. So we have to like uh, make something a little clearer here is that the I Ching is written in ancient Chinese, which is already cryptic for Chinese for scholars, Chinese for speakers, modern Chinese yeah. speakers. It is translated into German, and then that is translated into English. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, you could say that even the ancient Chinese is a translation of the language of the I Ching itself. Yeah. So it's like we're looking at like translations of translations of translations of translations, which nevertheless have been of tremendous help to me and Phil in our lives. Because very it, true. it works whether you believe in it or not. Very true. There's just a few details I think we should communicate right now. It's that the I Ching is not a game set. I, I didn't know what, before I bought the I Ching, before I really looked into it and got into it, I didn't know what it was. I knew it existed. I thought it was the game you play to divine. I thought that's what mm. the I Ching. The I Ching is actually the book itself. The word Ching in Chinese is basically means classic. And Yi, the word Yi, which is spelt in English, just an I, letter I, uh, means changes or change. So the Yi Ching means the book of changes. So it is a book in which you have these 64 hexagrams laid out with accompanying texts that were written over a long period of time by figures, probably historical, but legendary in the lore surrounding the book. There are like these supposedly um, the first emperor of China. This is a culture hero in Chinese history, we don't have any record of his actual existence called Fu Si. Basically a mythical yeah, figure. Basically a mythical figure. Probably has some historical basis, obviously, but we don't know anything about it. And he is the one who supposedly came up with, if I'm not mistaken, the original eight trigrams, the three line symbols. There are eight of these that combined in different ways form the 64 hexagrams. So if you think about, imagine three lines, one on top of the other, three solid lines, that's the trigram for Qian or heaven. And if you think about three broken lines, basically lines with a gap in the middle, like two dashes, those lines are, if you imagine three of those, one on top of the other, that's the receptive or the earth trigram, heaven, earth. And then there are six other trigrams, which correspond to various natural forces and psychic dispositions and energies and elements and seasons. So these trigrams represent the basic forces of the universe. And each hexagram takes two of these trigrams and stacks them one on top of the other. So for instance, the first hexagram of the I Ching, which is called the creative or heaven or force in my Stephen Karcher translation, which I really like because it's a literal translation. Um, these two trigrams are both, basically you're doubling the heaven trigram. You're putting heaven over heaven. And then the next hexagram in the book is earth. And that's the other primal force. And that's basically a doubling of the hexagram earth or the receptive. So three broken lines over three broken lines. And then from there, you have all the permutations. And you go through all the possible combinations and you end up with 64 hexagrams which correspond, well, according to those who believe in the I Ching, to correspond to the, the basic matrix of the universe out of which all change, both physical and psychic, emerges. Yep. And the reason it's called the Book of Changes, and something that makes this book unique 
I think, is that it is a book about change, a book about flux. In fact, to say that it's about flux or change is slightly wrong. It is a gazetteer of change. It is a map of change. Now, you might think, well, books, <laughs> by their nature, being fixed objects, you know, once it's written or printed, the words aren't going to swim around and change on the page, right? Like, surely a book can't encapsulate change, but the I Ching does by the system of its use. Basically, this book is divided into 64 chapters. I am simplifying greatly because this is a, it's actually very, very complicated, but the book is divided into 64 chapters, one chapter for each hexagram. And you can use yarrow stalks, a certain method of dividing yarrow stalks that little, little gives sticks. you little mm, sticks yeah. that gives you a random value, or you can use coins. And I always use coins, but you use some random method to generate a hexagram. And, you know, in this day and age, you can also use computer programs to generate hexagrams. It doesn't matter. You use a random method to generate a hexagram, and then you go to the, the chapter on that hexagram and you read it. And that hexagram pertains to whatever question that you've asked. So in the foreword that Carl Jung wrote to Richard Wilhelm's translation of the I Ching, itself a very important essay in the earlier Western reception of the I Ching, Carl Jung's essay, he bases it upon a reading that he himself does about the prospects of this new publication of the I Ching in the West, and asks the I Ching how it feels about being rendered into a Western language. And so he got the cauldron, what 50. Hexag hexagram 50. Yeah. And then he goes through the reading, all of the texts associated with that hexagram. And these texts are accreted from multiple textual layers that the earliest of which dates back about 3000 years. So the I Ching and its origins is an extremely ancient text, one of the oldest texts of humankind. Mm -hmm. Okay, so already you could say, well, I can kind of see how this would be a book of changes because your life is changing constantly. And if you're asking questions pertaining to your life and then going to the appropriate hexagram, then yeah, I see how that would be a book of changes. But it goes deeper than that because for each hexagram, there are six line readings, what we call moving lines. So... In the coin method, for instance, if I throw two heads and a tail, then that'll give me a broken line, a yeah. yin line. And if we're thinking in terms of yin and yang, those two fundamental forces, the creative and the receptive. Which are represented all, in the lines by solid lines, which are yang and, and broken lines, which are yin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, people will associate or people have for millennia associated those two fundamental forces, the creative and the receptive, the masculine and the feminine, heaven and earth, and these multiple meanings. People have associated those with yang and yin. So let's say I throw two heads and a tail. That gives me a yin or a, a receptive yin. line. Yeah, yeah. Stable yin. Yeah. But let's say I throw three tails. That's called old yin, yeah. which is to say, it's sort of like um, 
think about actually the time of year it is right now. It's late August going into September and all of the plants have grown up fully and now they're really, really fully grown. They're kind of past their apogee and they're beginning to go to seed, literally. They're getting kind of ugly looking. The insects have gnawed on them. Uh, they're sort of dusty and beat up from a long, hot Indiana summer and the seed pods are breaking open and they're going to seed and soon they will die back. And of course, then the whole cycle repeats itself. And it's in observing natural processes like this that the I Ching has gained its reputation to me quite justifiedly as a book of all of the changes of the universe. So you can observe that particular change, the idea of something growing old, ripening, getting, yeah. yeah, ripening to the point that it begins to kind of push past the point of health and it starts to transform into something else. There's a force or a an energy we've talked about many times in the show, enantiodromia, Jung called it, or simply reversal, which is the idea that anything pushed to the limits of its potentialities and capacities will reverse into its opposite. Mm -hmm. Marshall McLuhan was very fond of that idea. But that mm -hmm. is the generative idea of the changes part of the book of changes. Because this idea is that when, for example, a yin line gets old, when it's like too much yin, it's uh, an excess of yin, it begins to lose its nature and the two broken ends of that line begin to knit together. It becomes and, a yang line. And if it keeps going, it will become a yang line and vice versa. A yang line, when it gets old, when it goes to seed, starts to fracture and break up and it becomes a yin line. And each of the six lines of the hexagram any one of those lines could be a moving line, depending on what coins you throw or how the stocks fall. So in other words, you'll have six lines when you do your draw, because each toss of the coins generates one of the six lines. So you toss the coins six times, each time generating a line, and each line will either be a stable yang line or solid line, a stable yin line or broken line, or a moving yin or yang line, which is exactly. which is basically a line that's about to switch into its opposite. So in other words, right. when you look at the result of your divination, you'll have one hexagram and then you draw another hexagram in which all those lines that are about to change have changed. And that indicates the future potential or implicit situation. And you're, that's, right. that's what things are moving towards. So in other words, each hexagram in the I Ching could, in the context of a particular situation, divination... Any hexagram could change into any other hexagram. That's so right. Even though there's a linear progression of the hexagrams that's set in the book from heaven and earth all the way to after completion, the final hexagram, and it makes sense. There's also another chaotic order of the hexagrams, which is aleatory and changes according to the situation. So you could draw hexagram 50, the cauldron, and have it move to any of the other 63 hexagrams, potentially, uh, depending on which lines are moving. So in that sense, the hexagram template is a kind of digital switchboard in yep. which you have six positions and each of those is either light or dark. That's less important, but uh, the first, third, and fifth positions on the hexagram are called light and the second, fourth, and sixth are called dark. This is the background against which the lines appear. And then each line itself is either light or dark, depending on whether it's solid or, and it superimposes itself on this matrix to form a particular picture of a situation. And there's a limited number because lines are either firm or yielding. 
and they're in one of the six positions. So you have a limited number of potential hexagrams and the I Ching covers them all. And so you have basically a digital computer made 3000 years ago for divining the flux of reality. Yep. And it is the first computer because it is in sense like like by definition, a kind of computer. Yeah. It's a way of computing <laughs> the real. And yeah. uh, the conceit or the belief is that in finding, discovering these hexagrams or in creating these hexagrams, the ancient Chinese sages discovered those fundamental forces and allowed us to have direct access to a layer of the real that subtends the manifest world, the world of manifestation. Right. The reason why we link, for example, fire with creative energy and we'll link fire with destruction. Like, you know what I mean? Like that all the correspondences that obtain in a symbolic appreciation of any phenomenon is not explained, but at least uh, justified by the way the I Ching aligns all these forces together and contrasts them with one another. Yep. Yeah. Perfectly said. That's great. And so I love what you say. This is like a digital computer for calculating change, yeah. for understanding change. The whole idea is what a sage does, and this is a traditional and old Chinese idea of what a sage is, is somebody who is able to perceive change at its roots, at the very beginning of a situation beginning to turn. Yes. And normally to most of us, maybe all of us, uh, those incipient, very early beginnings of a change are invisible. We don't see them. But the idea is that the I Ching allows you to perceive the roots yeah. of events, the yes. roots of changes, and therefore to intervene skillfully in reality. Right. Absolutely. And a good example, think about, let's say, the end of a marriage, right? You're married, you go into it full throttle, you're both devoted. And then eventually, at some point, the marriage falls apart and you and end pe up And separated. people will say stuff like, I woke up one day and I realized I no longer loved her. Yeah. As though that were, it was just like you were that in day. one mode and then boom, <laughs> it just switched. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe that happens. But most of the time, after something has ended, you can look back and you can see where it started, right? Mm -hmm. In retrospect, you know, hindsight 2020, like... In retrospect, you can see where the seeds of change were planted. The idea is that the I Ching would have allowed you to see those seeds when they were there. Whereas in, yeah. without the I Ching or without divination, whatever method you prefer, like without some kind of divining act, you would not be able to see the seeds of change in your life. You need yep. some kind of divinatory practice to be able to to commune with the spirits using the spirit in the abstract sense of forces or in the personified sense of actual spirits to commune with the spirits that undergird and subtend the changes in your life so that you can pierce through the illusion of aleatory nonsense that you yeah. actually organize yourself with your ego mind into a picture of reality. You're, you're going deeper into a deeper layer. In the example I've just described there, the marriage to use divination as a way to see not only where you are at in your marriage, but where it's going. And that doesn't mean you should always, like every day, you should consult the I Ching about your marriage. Uh, you know, most of the time. Or if, anything if there's no, for that matter. Yeah, yeah that's, a, because that's I an think important actually, thing. It's probably a stage that everybody who really gets into the I Ching goes through where you get a little crazy and you 
feel like you have to ask the I Ching about every last goddamn thing. And that actually is its own problem. But anyway, that's all I was yeah. going to say. That's one of the classic traps of divination generally is that you become sort of superstitious and feel like you can't move a finger without first consulting. Yes, that's the phase that I had to go through. Yeah, you need to be able to act. But also be able to accede some of that control to the universe. Okay, well, I'll ask you, what what kind of situation do you find warrants uh, a divinatory act in general? Oh, that's a very good question. Situations where I don't know my own heart, you know, because... Uh, indecision? Indecision, or especially around emotional things where I often find that my own motivations, my own feelings about things can be very opaque to me. Maybe I'm more obtuse than other people in this respect, but sometimes being able to say, what do I really think about this? Like clarify my thoughts for me. That can be one situation. That's just one, though, one of a many. Situations where you're pondering a course of action where the outcome cannot be known. That's the most common thing. So for example, I, about a year ago, started Zen study, again, like formal Zen study. And the fellow that I'm studying with is a teacher of koans. And koans, I never really dealt with them earlier in my practice. And so I wanted to ask the I Ching, like, where would this go? Like, consequence of this, or what, what, would, what advice would you give me on undertaking a course of study in koans? And I got very good advice about that. Mm -hmm. uh, new ventures, right, is always yeah. something where I find myself using it. When we started this podcast. Yeah. When I, this can be a trap too, though. But when I embark on a new writing project, I'll often consult the I Ching. But that can be a problem if you ask too early. If you don't yeah. know what to write next and you ask it, well, what should I write next? It's not going to help much, at least in my experience. <laughs> but uh, when things are beginning, where things are nascent, is a good time to consult the I Ching. Before, a, you know, before a ship sets out on the ocean, you'd imagine mm -hmm. the ancients would consult the I Ching to know about the journey. The idea is always that it's not a deterministic or fatalistic system. The basic underlying principle of the I Ching or the assumption is that you are always able to change your situation if you are aware of the forces at work, that you have agency. You know, the Chinese, I've read this, the, the ancient Taoists see, or maybe the modern Taoists do this too, but they see heaven and earth as these big primordial forces. And when we say heaven and earth, I mean, when we look at the actual sky and we look down at the actual earth, these are just their most visible manifestation. Right. When I say heaven and earth, I'm actually talking about forces that don't manifest, at least not physically. These are forces that undergird um, reality. But their clearest manifestation to us would be the sky and the earth, right? Well, according to, to the Taoists, humanity occupies a center point between these two forces. 
And humanity, too, is only what we call humanity, like actual human beings, is only the visible manifestation of something much deeper. So it's not like we have abstract forces and then humans, the way we understand them, are dropped in the middle. We ourselves are a symbol of something deeper. So this midpoint between heaven and earth that we are is almost like, this is the way I interpret it, almost kind of a chaotic free agent that enters what might otherwise have been a fatalistic or deterministic story that allows for all kinds of spontaneous change to occur. Now, that's not quite right, because I think there's spontaneity and freedom all over nature. But the human element is what I think makes it possible for any hexagram to change into any other one, as opposed to the hexagrams being bound to follow the progression described in the book itself. Yeah. Uh, but then I want to just qualify that by saying that when I mean the human element, I'm talking about the element of freedom in the universe, which is also present in nature. And here we could talk about like, uh, uh, what's his name? Viveros de Castro, the uh, South American anthropologist of just vague knowledge of his where I read cannibal metaphysics a while ago. But in that, he describes how most indigenous cultures, quite contrary to what many would believe, they believe that every animal and every plant was once human. Hmm. And shamanism is about drawing the human part out of various animals and plants and spirits. That everything is a human that got turned into something else. But the way that he interprets what that means is that there's something that we call human, and we are mistaken when we limit it to actual human beings. It is some kind of force in all of nature, which we are a visible manifestation of. And so let's just go back to the model I was kind of building there. You have heaven on top, earth at the bottom, and then in the middle and, and dispersed throughout creation, this wild free element, which the I Ching acknowledges by allowing one to jump from any one hexagram to any other hexagram. I don't know if that makes yeah. any sense, but. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so I have a question that is similar to the question you've just asked. Not under what circumstances would you consult the I Ching, but what are some circumstances where you should avoid consulting the I Ching? Oh, yeah. Well, I've, I know a lot about that because I have gone through long... <laughs> we all I, do. Yeah. I, I find Anybody that... who spent a lot of time with this book goes through various predictable stages of fucking up and learning from those mistakes or hopefully learning from them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find the periods in my life that are particularly troubled, either uh, financially difficult periods or periods where I don't know what to do next, where I'm not on a project. I, I always need a project or else I kind of go nuts. And periods like that, of course, the I Ching you'd figure would be essential in those times, but it's essential that if I use the I Ching in those situations that I act afterwards. If I use the I Ching, don't act, continue to fret, and then you consult it again, I enter a vicious cycle where I, uh, I'm living in a world of potential with no actualization. And the mm. I Ching becomes a kind of poor substitute for actualization. I yes. feel like I'm doing something when I'm consulting the I Ching, when in fact, I'm not actually doing anything. I'm just continuing to spin. And so I find that there are times where when you feel very undecided about something and you consult the I Ching and you keep being undecided despite what it gave you, just do something, change the situation before you consult again, because yeah. you can get stuck in a rut there. I find. Mm -hmm. So that'd be one situation where I would advise caution. Another one is when you're asking about the future. 
Mm-hmm. Never I, ask I, about I, the future. I really agree. Yeah. yeah. Don't ask what will happen when. You can ask where is this going. That's one way of, of phrasing it that I think can work. But to ask about will I, you know, if you're going on a trip to Thailand, will I die on this trip? Well, <laughs> you know. Um, and Not yes, a good question anyway, because yeah. the I Ching doesn't do well with yes or no questions. That's a that's a great point. It doesn't do well at all. Get uh, a pendulum those. for those. Yes. But be careful, because the pendulum, you know, I remember when I... All of these systems are treacherous yeah, they in are. different ways, or possibly treacherous. Or maybe the treachery only lies with us, with our misuse of them, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. I'll give you an example of a, uh, a very necessary reading I had that was actually very helpful. My first solo hiking trip, I encountered a bear at the end of my first day. And it was just a shit show. I went out there with 80 pounds on my back. I was young and stupid and it was a total failure. After I saw the bear, I decided to hike back to my car and wait and start again the next day. I won't tell that story. But after I saw the bear, which was basically hanging out about 100 feet from my campsite where I was supposed to camp that night, because in Canada, you have to reserve your your sites, even though you're the only person for like hundreds of miles around, but whatever. That's Um, very Canadian. Yeah. (laughs) Um, after I saw the bear, I backtracked a bit, obviously I didn't want to keep moving towards the bear. So I moved away and then I consulted the I Ching. Uh, I had coins, but I didn't have the book. So I just drew the hexagram out in the dirt, throwing these coins to know whether I should leave or continue on my trip. And I got the one, it was, um, was the one that basically indicates a storm, I guess, thunder over thunder, the arousing. Yeah. It basically told me that a storm was coming. The sky was blue. It wasn't a cloud in the sky. And I thought... You were like, oh, some kind of metaphorical storm. Yeah. I'm like, some kind of metaphorical storm. And and uh, that's a very interesting hexagram. I'm, I'm actually not quite sure it was that one. It might have been one about rain. Uh, but anyways, it was a hexagram that I took to mean... It was ambivalent, but I thought... There's more trouble ahead if I keep going. So I turned away. I turned back. That night, there was one of the biggest storms I've ever experienced. I was driving home in this storm. It was fucking crazy. And so sometimes the answers you'll get will be like literal. Sometimes they'll be more subtle and more symbolic or metaphorical. The I Ching won't do the work for you. There's a lot of work involved in using the I Ching. It's not like one of those magic eight balls that gives you a clear answer (laughs) to whatever question you have. It gives you a dream. It gives you an image and your job is to interpret that image and find out its meaning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you one situation where it is not good to consult the I Ching. And this is a very traditional idea that you need to approach the I Ching with a certain equanimity. You need to be calm in your mind. And if you are like Joel Barocco and his Excellent website. If if you want a good starting place for how to just get into the I Ching, you could do no better than the website uh, A Crane Calling in Shade, which is Joel Barocco, aka S.J. Marshall's I Ching website, and he gives us an example: a woman that he knew, I think, who was like frantically throwing the coins at two thirty in the morning when her boyfriend had failed to come home and she was like, he's out with another woman. I just know it. And she got 
an answer to one of her questions that was actually pertaining to her psychological state, her being completely like caught up in this madness. Mm -hmm. But she couldn't see the very obvious plain interpretation that was staring her in the face because she was thinking of everything in terms of the thing that she was kind of locked onto, what she was perseverating about. And so those kinds of situations often happen. The I Ching will very seldom give you a bum steer. But you might not be able to understand what you're looking at if you don't have a balanced frame of mind. And a corollary of that is don't ask questions you don't want to hear the answers to. Right. Because the I Ching is very honest. Uh, I realize that for maybe our more rationalistic listeners, <laughs> assuming we have any, um, <laughs> This might sound superstitious, but I'm just going to say outright, I trust the I Ching to a degree that I don't trust hardly anything else. Right. The I Ching has been a steady companion of mine for years and has never steered me wrong. Imagine imagine going to your, your spouse or the person who's closest to you in your life and saying, okay, I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to be totally honest with me. I don't want you to couch your words. I don't want any white lies. I want you to tell me the absolute truth. And then you ask them a question about yourself. And if your spouse is... Do these pants make my ass look big? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so if you don't want to hear... You were supposed if, to say that. Yeah. If you don't want to hear yes, don't ask. Because uh, I find that too. It, and the I Ching has a sense of humor too. It makes no, fun it of you. So, yeah. Like Philip K. Dick turned against the I Ching big time towards the end there. He thought yeah, he wrote it was a very a, paranoid essay. Of, of course, he was paranoid about everything. So yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but, he, but he felt that the I Ching was actuated by like malicious Malicious spirits. trickster spirits. Yeah. That were yeah. fucking with you. Um, and probably uh, because they told him he was batshit crazy. He was like, fuck you. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I just knowing uh, Dick's work, I wouldn't be surprised. And I think actually there are examples of this in his nonfictional writings and his autobiographical writings that he would use the I Ching way too much. Uh, yeah. In the way you described there with a woman in the middle of the night, like, yeah. like, like if it's three in the morning, you probably shouldn't consult the I Ching. <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> up? What are you fretting about? <laughs> Just go to fucking bed. Um, it's like they say nothing good happens after 1 a.m. Right. Yeah. 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 It goes for the I Ching as well as like, you know, being on these streets. That's good advice. Good advice you just gave. Um, and meditate a little bit before you... Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have my own method of setting the stage or setting the table for a reading. It involves like like Catholic shit that I do because it, that feels, I feel connected to those. And I do Zen shit. Exactly. But I also just do a little meditation because you need yeah. to detach yourself from the emotions involved because wanted or not, I mean, nine times out of 10, the situation you're going to be divining is going to be one that's emotionally fraught for you. It's not an easy situation. It's not, in fact, when something feels completely vapid and, and, and unnecessary, your readings usually end up being not that meaningful. There needs to be some emotional charge in the situation, but you need to be able in the moment to detach yourself from that emotion. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's by the, the way, that brings up another thou shalt not. Don't ask trivial, pointless shit to the exactly. I Ching. Like don't, yeah. don't consult the I Ching for fun because I, I swear to God, the I Ching knows when you're fucking with it and it doesn't like it. Yeah. Which is why Dick uh, got in trouble with it. 
Yeah, you get garbage readings or sometimes even just deceptive readings if you're approaching the I Ching in bad faith. One of the fundamental laws of magic insofar as magic has laws, actually Lionel Snell, aka Ramsey Dukes, likes to say there's really only one magical law, which is explore and empathize, that a magical way of living and thinking and approaching the world is one in which you are personifying the things that you encounter, that you don't look at trees as just being you know, living but insentient objects. You approach them as fellow beings, much like yourself. And by giving some of your subjectivity to all of the things you encounter in the world around you, that is kind of the wellspring of magic. And I believe this to be true very, very strongly. Just quick parenthesis before you continue. If you want to know more about that way, like we discussed that in depth in our Graham Harmon episode yeah. uh, on the third table. And also, I think in the walking episode, we touch on that. Yeah. And Lionel's book, Uncle Ramsey's Little Book of Demons, is the perfect book to read on this subject. Anyway, I just to get back to the I Ching, I find that that idea works very well with divination generally to personify the divinatory system you're working with. So whether it's the tarot or the I Ching... It is well to think of the I Ching as an actual person yeah. that you are asking a question. And so, for instance, a typical dumbass rationalist thing to do with the I Ching is be like, well, rationally speaking, if it really knew the answer to your question, if you ask the question twice, you get the same answer. So I'm going to try to do that. Actually, I think I'm drawing this example from Lionel's work somewhere. Um, imagine you pulled that shit with a doctor. Yeah. You know, you went to a doctor, you're like, and then you, you, he gives you your answer and then you walk out and you come back 30 seconds later and ask the same question again. Yeah. You'd be like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and there is, there is a hexagram. I've gotten this hexagram only in situations like that where I didn't like the answer. So I ask again, you get hexagram four, youthful folly. I'm sure you've gotten it too. In which <laughs> yes. the I Ching, the I Ching speaks in the first person. This is the judgment. The judgment is the first text for each hexagram. The judgment is for youthful folly. Youthful folly has success. It is not I who seek the young fool. The young fool seeks me. At the first oracle, I inform him. If he asks two or three times, it is importunity. If he importunes, I give him no information. Perseverance furthers. <laughs> I just love the joke at the end. It's like, keep trying, asshole. Um, there's a, a nice paragraph about that in Jung's introduction to the Wilhelm translation. He says... He writes at one point, I agree with Western thinking that any number of answers to my question were possible. He's referring to the act of divination that he's describing in the introduction itself. And I certainly cannot assert that another answer would not have been equally significant than the one I got. However, the answer received was the first and only one. We know nothing of other possible answers. It pleased and satisfied me. To ask the same question a second time would have been tactless, and so I did not do it. The master speaks but once. The heavy-handed pedagogic approach that attempts to fit irrational phenomena into a preconceived rational pattern is anathema to me. Indeed, such things as this answer should remain as they were when they first emerged to view. For only then do we know what nature does when left to herself undisturbed by the meddlesomeness of man. One ought not to go to cadavers to study life. Moreover, a repetition of the experiment is impossible for the simple reason that the original situation cannot be reconstructed. Therefore, in each instance, there is only a first and single answer. 
That's a great, great passage. I read, it's been ages since I read that essay, but I reread it for this conversation. And I confess that that idea had never quite occurred to me in that elegant and precisely stated a form, which is, you know, okay, get back to what we were saying before. The whole idea of the I Ching is that you are intervening in very specific moments where change is beginning. The seeds of change are beginning to break open and, and sprout. And sage or wise action is action that is informed by those moments. But if you think about it, it's like each individual second, each moment, each thousandth of a second is different. Yeah. Each moment is a singularity and the I Ching's answers pertain to that singularity. No, I totally agree with you. I just want to just specify something because you could say that Yes, everything is always changing completely from one moment to the next. However, situations do develop and, and change over yes, time. Yes. So when you ask a question about, I don't know, your marriage, the answer you got is the answer about your marriage. It will still be a good answer tomorrow. Right. But the point is that this was the moment where you asked about it. That yeah. was the singularity of the divination. That's exactly. why asking the same question again while in the same situation is a betrayal yeah. of the trust that the I Ching asks for. And that's it's a very yeah. important clarification because you have to understand and working with the I Ching teaches you every situation includes you. You know, those uh, mystical Sufi stories, his teaching stories. One of them, I can't remember any of the details, but it's about a guy who can't figure out how many donkeys he has because he doesn't count the one he's riding. Right. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that one. And that's, and that's a metaphor for something that human beings do all the time. We yeah. like to think that a situation is just like an objective thing, especially if you buy into a very, you know, especially Western idea of a subject-object dualism, where a situation is an objective thing happening out there and I am merely an observer of it. And you don't understand that you are always already a part of every situation you could divine. Yeah. You're like the guy who doesn't count the donkey he's riding. Right. You're not able to count. You're not able to come up with a sufficient apprehension of reality. And so, yeah, it's important to understand that while the situation you're defining, like your marriage or whatever, the answer might be roughly the same today, tomorrow, a week from now or a year from now. You are different at every moment and you are a part of that situation that makes each situation unique. Right. Very important to keep that in mind. I'm going to say something 
controversial. Okay. The I Ching does not exist. <laughs> I'll yeah. just play my I'll... part and go, what do you mean? I have it right here. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, well, something that is really remarkable about the I Ching when you start thinking about it is that it's not only a book of change, a book, a, a literal book of changes in the way that we've described. But as a book, it is change. There is, from a certain point of view, no single thing we can call the I Ching. And to understand what I mean by that, I need to take a step into a little bit of textual history. There is a earliest stratum or layer. We can almost kind of think of the I Ching by analogy with one of those ancient cities like Rome, which has been repeatedly burned and sacked by invaders, uh, fallen down, built on top of, fallen down, built on top of, until you have these different strata, these different layers. And if you dig down far enough, well, London apparently is like this. If you dig down far enough, you're in Roman London. And if you dig down even further, you're in pre-Roman London. The I Ching is like that. And the first stratum that we didn't have any knowledge of, and is almost certainly not the first stratum, but everything earlier than this would belong to oral history and therefore unrecorded. The earliest stratum about 3,000 years ago in the second known dynasty of China, the Zhou dynasty, it was composed in what's called the Western Zhou, the early part. So about 1,000 to 700 BCE. And... That earliest stratum is the hexagrams, the name of the hexagram, the judgment, and the moving lines that we've described. And that stratum is called the Zhou Yi, the changes of Zhou. And there's an excellent book. I'm holding it up for you here. Zhou Yi, the Book of Changes, a new translation with commentary by Richard Rutt. Richard Rutt was, I believe, a Protestant churchman who devoted his life to paleographic study of this earliest stratum of the I Ching. So that's the book to get if you're interested in this stuff. The original Zhou Yi is extremely obscure. These are divinatory readings that probably originate ultimately in the oracle bones, or maybe, I mean, what the fuck do I know, but in oracle bones inscriptions that were discovered in the previous Shang dynasty and even earlier in that in the Yellow River civilization that predates anything we might call China. That's the first stratum. And then there are what are called the 10 wings. And I only just realized recently that they're called the wings because the idea is that they help the Zhou Yi, the changes of Zhou, to fly. In other words, they make sense of them because otherwise they are very, very obscure and were obscure even in Han Dynasty. China. Yeah. When Confucius writes about the I Ching, he's looking at it as something very ancient already. Yeah. Which and, it was. And cryptic and puzzling. You know, yeah. and Lao Tse too, I think, talks about the I Ching as, uh, or at least is, is reported to have uh, used the I Ching, devoted yeah. most of his life to it. Well, I, there's a lot of controversy about that. I mean, not to get into all of the scholarly disputes about it, but I mean, suffice it to say, even in like the third or second century BCE, this stuff was already incredibly remote. I think about it. You know, to say 300 BCE, the changes were already as old or as distant in time from them as the Middle Ages are. The high Middle, the Middle Ages, Ages yeah. are to us. Yeah. Right. yeah. So the Ten Wings are the things that help make sense 
of this. But I also like the idea that they're wings, sort of like wings of a house, that you can think of, um, I'm changing mm. up my metaphor, from nice. an old city to an old house, where maybe the oldest part of the house is some shambling structure at the core of it. And then over the years, sort of like Gormenghast, you know, right. every generation, people have added a thing or two, a wing or two. It's a quote from a Jerome Kern song. And it works that way too. The 10 wings are commentaries and they're different kind of commentaries. I'm not going to go into the details of what kinds of commentaries they are. Traditionally, they're attributed to Confucius, but that's of course contested. Yeah. But in any event, they are commentaries. And when we talk about the I Ching, we're, Westerners are usually thinking of the Wilhelm Bain's I Ching which is a truly magnificent translation. I'm not going to be hipster about it and be like, oh, you know, the other other ones that are so much better. It really is a magnificent scholarly achievement. And many people have written about the shortcomings of it and fine. But I still think it is, even just as literature, it's beautiful it's writing. It's a beautiful book, yeah. It's a beautiful book. But one of the things about this book is that because it's such a perfect book in itself, that it kind of makes you think like, oh, that's what the I Ching is. But it's not really. Because Wilhelm was faced with a just an organizational difficulty that all other editions are faced with. It's like, do you present just the first stratum, the Joyi, all on its own, and then the 10 wings in like separately? Then it becomes almost impossible to consult. Right. Unless you're a sinologist, unless you have like real specialist knowledge. And so Wilhelm, I think, quite properly decided to turn each hexagram into a proper chapter that would contain not only that earliest stratum of the hexagram, the name, the judgment, the line readings, but also interleaving the best passages or the most relevant passages from the Ten Wings. Some of the Ten Wings he didn't use, but most of them he used. But the wings are kind of interleaved with the oldest stratum. And so what you have is a book with its commentaries kind of baked in. But the thing about that is, is that the Ten Wings are only a group of canonic commentaries that were anthologized and standardized at a certain period of time in the early common era, much the same way that the Council of Nicaea standardized the was, contents of the Bible. I was going to say, it's a very, the situation is analogous to the situation of the Bible. The Bible, like Biblos means book, but uh, the Bible is more of a, a library than a book. Exactly. And, and it's, precisely. Uh, and there are different versions of the Bible, you know, the, the Jerusalem Bible that the Vatican recommends or uses is not the same Bible as a lot of the Protestant churches that include different texts and reject others to this day. Uh, in the Council of Nicaea, these bishops who were tasked with deciding what the canon would be, what the official gospels would be, were faced with like a plethora of texts that we found. I mean, we found a lot of them, the Nag Hammadi texts and some of the older Gnostic texts that we'd retained through time, and they had to choose. So there's a kind of a, a layer of artifice involved in whatever exactly. version of the I Ching you're looking at. So yes, exactly. you're right. Yeah. Because, yeah. because the commentaries have never stopped. This book has created a staunchless flow of commentary. And theoretically, the I Ching is not just the original stratum of the Zhou Yi, not just that stratum plus the Ten Wings. It is a process. Right. And that process is still ongoing. And whatever you call the I Ching is going to be a book where you are drawing together 
a basic framework, a chassis of the hexagrams and the attributions, their names, on top of which you will build an ever-shifting, pluriform, fluid edifice of commentary and exegesis and interpretation. So when I say there's no such thing as the I Ching, what's really cool is that the I Ching is not just a book about process, it is a process. And so it is in itself an instance of the becoming that it allows us to divine. Like Exactly. But there is a stable element in all this, namely the hexagrams themselves. Those yeah. have not changed. The 64 hexagrams are fucking carved in stone digital. You can't change them. It would yeah. make no sense to make any changes to them. And they have been constant since 3,000 years ago. So that's something. So if we yeah. reduce the I Ching just to the set of hexagrams themselves without any interpretation, commentary, judgment, what have you, you do have a stable core to all this. We're all pouring over the same quote unquote text or figures at least. And yep. there's, a, there's actually a hexagram that touches on this requirement, this need for a stable element to allow becoming to unfold around it. In the I Ching, it's number 48, hexagram 48, the well. Uh, the judgment for this hexagram is as follows, according to Wilhelm. The well, the town may be changed, but the well cannot be changed. It neither decreases nor increases. They come and go and draw from the well. If one gets down almost to the water and the rope does not go all the way or the jug breaks, it brings misfortune. In other words, the well is stable. The well is the hexagrams. The hexagrams are this infinitely rich, deep, whatever, well of meaning that we draw from. And all of these commentaries and even going as far as like the original King Wen judgments All of these are just attempts at drawing water from this well. Well, they are successful attempts at drawing water from this well. But the well is the lines themselves. And this goes to something that I've been wrestling with, and I don't want to get deep into it, but this need to have some kind of stable element before you can talk about eternal becoming. The need for Heraclitus to speak of the Logos before he can speak of every river being different every time you cross it. There needs to be the stable element, and that's the part that's been so hard for moderns to grok. Moderns find it very hard to accept that this set of symbols could actually represent real objective forces that don't change beneath reality. It's really, Mm -hmm. really hard for us to accept that because it automatically puts us in a religious framework. Well, this actually leads to a question that I was going to ask like fucking half an hour ago, typical of me. So this is Richard Rutt's wonderful commentary on the Zhou Yi. And the whole first part is him talking about like Bronze Age China, the cultural milieu in which this oracle was first created, fascinating in itself and full of human sacrifice. This is something that later uh, more canonical commentators on the I Ching seem systematically to have denied is that for the Shang and even for the Western Zhou, there was a lot of human sacrifice that was a part of divination. So some unsavory aspects to the history of it. And Rutt is a historicist. He wants to restore historical context to a text, which is very often mythologized to an unhelpful degree. And part of this is a very remarkable contention that he makes. And I want to run it by you and see what you think. He says, there's good reason for regarding Zhou Yi as a classic religious text because it was originally used in communication with spirits and in the ordering of royal sacrifices. 
But this is not to say that either Zhou Yi or Yi Jing is a work of spirituality. Indeed, when Yi Jing is compared with the Davidic Psalms, some of which are possibly the same age, or with the Heart Sutra, its lack of spirituality becomes apparent. Yulian Schutzky made this point succinctly when he said that Yi Jing, quote, does not go beyond the borders of this world and was thus in the end accepted by Confucianism. Uh, Rutt goes on to say that Confucian, mm. Confucius did not accept an idea of spirits or forces really beyond the imminent world. So it goes to show you that imminent frame shit is not unique to modernity. But Rutt goes on to, uh, you know, after the little digression on Confucius, he goes on to talk about how Buddhist spirituality centers on nirvana. Taoism seeks transcendent serenity. The object of Christian spirituality is union with God. Self-denial is essential to them all. Yi Jing, by contrast, is self-assertive. It says nothing of spiritual humility, self-denial, or self-sacrifice. There is nothing in it resembling yoga, mystic union, or transcendence. There are, is one passage in the Wilhelm Baines edition that does suggest yoga, but that appears to be Wilhelm's own edition, yeah, his own commentary. Wilhelm brings a lot of transcendent talk in his own commentaries, which add another stratum to the book we should yeah, mention. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Precisely. So he yeah. interprets it religiously uh, yeah. a lot of the time. And... Rutt, however, wants to push back against that very powerful influence of Richard Wilhelm. I'm continuing here. If Yijing has been used for spiritual purposes, they are extrinsic to the text. Love, another litmus test for spirituality, is not mentioned in the Zhou It occurs only three times in the Ten Wings. As a social faculty and as typical of ideal relationships in the royal household. Right. Furthermore, spirituality, whether Buddhist, Taoist, or Christian, deals positively with failure, while Yijing is wholly concerned with success and essentially pragmatic. Short-term success was the object of the kings for whom the Book of Changes was composed. And he points out that a lot of those latter-day almost always resprays of Wilhelm Baines. They're almost all the new age, like businessmen's eachings are almost all of them just plagiarisms from Wilhelm. But Rott points out, I think quite accurately, like there's a reason why those businessmen eachings exist because the eachings interest in near-term success is faithfully reflected by the priorities of modern business people. Hmm. And hmm. and he says a genuinely spiritual commentator, John Blofield. Oh, this which is, is the most a, Protestant shit I've ever heard. <laughs> I knew you would say that. Okay, so I, I, I I'm just angering you up, and and, no, no. and that is, that's usually a great way to get an out of the park response from you. Um, and so he quotes John Blofeld saying, if you say that the oracle owes its effectiveness to the subconscious of the one who asked the question, which is almost always how people rationally try to explain the I Ching while not explaining it away, or to the unconscious, which is probably universal and therefore common to all men, or to the one mind, capital O, capital M, in the Zen sense, or to God or a God or the gods, or to the philosopher's absolute, I shall be inclined to agree with every one of these suggestions, for I believe that most of these terms are imperfect descriptions of a single unknown and unknowable but omnipotent reality, end quote. Uh, but <laughs> then Rutt adds, Blofeld, too, had to look beyond the text to find a spirituality. Well, look, I think that Rutt's problem, and I haven't read this book, so I'm just going on what, you, what I've heard, so I might be strawmanning him a bit. 
Rutt's problem is that he has severed the Shoei as the authentic text from all the commentaries that followed. He's precisely doing mm. what you said we can't do, which is to see exactly. the teaching as something that exists as opposed to a process. The Confucius commentaries, the commentaries that are part of the I Ching in any version you care to name, are all spiritual and have to do with, there's a lot of mention of God in the singular and of transcendence and of uh, being a, a Shun Tzu, a holy man, and all that. So yeah, of course, if you sever that, I mean, but he's basically doing what Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins do with the Bible, which is they'll take the the, the violent bits from the book of Joshua and the batshit nonsense from the book of Deuteronomy and then say, see, this is what Christians and Muslims and Jews believe, this type of nonsense. Well, yeah, of course, if you just <laughs> sever, you just choose what counts as the authentic text. And there's no doubt, in my mind at least, that the actual historical progenitors of the I Ching were power-hungry warlords. Because everybody back Absolutely. then was a power-hungry warlord. It was a the, violent time. It was a violent time where, where survival was a matter of, like, Every day. It was like every day was a matter of life and death. And all the more so if you were up in the echelons of power because fucking kings were beheaded left, right and center. Um, so to me, the I Ching is a process of transmuting a very earthly sorceress kind of thing into something transcendent. And the process of that transmutation isn't a falsification or a betrayal. It's a discovery, a deepening a sinking into the truth of the process. In other words, Confucius probably saw more in the I Ching than the warlords who used it with their human sacrifices did at first. Um, And and this is an ahistoric uh, way or anti-historicist way of looking at it. But to me, it's the only way that can make sense of the fact that the I Ching works, right? So. If you start, which it totally yeah, fucking which, does, I don't care what anyone says. So in that passage you read, I sense the same kind of um, criticism that some of the Protestant churches level at Orthodox or Catholic Christianity, which is that it values good works. It sees this life, this world, as the stage for a divine drama, which means that you could be doing anything in a kind of Catholic or Orthodox sacramental vision of the universe, anything you do from making tea to like pursuing a sexual exploit to going to war, all of these things have divine kind of ramifications. Yeah. It's like, you don't have to make that choice about whether the I Ching is spiritual. Everything humans do is spiritual, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if everything we do is spiritual, then the I Ching is spiritual. I have a feeling Rut wouldn't have much to say for magic either which also is quite practical. But there's a very useful little book. Um, Unfortunately, it's rather expensive. Uh, I got it as a freebie when I did some review work for Oxford University Press. But Oxford University Press has a very useful little primer called Teaching the I Ching by Jeffrey Redmond and Siki Hon. And it has a lot of good stuff, just history of it, textual history, social history, divination and its discontents. It's got a lot of little gems in it. And one of the really wonderful insights is that the Western hermetic maxim, as above, so below, could just as easily be the maxim of the I Ching. Because yes. what, we were just, what we were just talking about, the way in which this is a gazetteer of the forces that move everything in the universe. 
Those forces are embodied in us. As you pointed out, heaven and earth, they mean heaven and earth in the sense of like, I look out my window and I see the sky and I see the ground. But the sky and the ground are instantiations or hypostases of forces that go much deeper than any given instance. There is a kind of a cosmic vision, not cosmic in the sense of like in the stars, but just a kind of underlying latticework of forces. I mean, if we're talking from the point of view of ultimate reality, there's no above and below, right? But we right. always use the term above to talk about that cosmic reality. That is above and we are below, but we are the faithful image of that above. And as they point out in this very useful handbook, the above is also a faithful reflection of us below, which right. is something that you were saying before. And right. that hermeticism is the carrying on of practical activity in the world, making love or making war, doing business, writing a book, whatever, the practical business of life here below in the mundane human realm, understanding that as simultaneously war down here is a war in heaven. Right. Intellectual work, this recording this podcast is doing the work of heaven. Yeah. And yeah. uh, and heaven is doing the work of us. It's an extraordinary way of thinking of it. That is a, the key to hermeticism. And I think it's also the key to understanding what the I Ching is about. And if you say, yeah, that's not spiritual. There's nothing about self-sacrifice in that. It just seemed, that just seems to me to be a very limited, uh, and as you say, rather Protestant <laughs> idea of what spirituality is. Although I can right. imagine a lot of Buddhists saying the same thing. I, I suspect there are plenty of Buddhists who might even be listening to the show for whom the idea of consulting the I Ching would be quite outlandish, would be like, why would you want to do that? I would think that all the major religions, I certainly know Catholicism forbids uh, in its own kind of I forbid you, but climb every mountain kind of way. Yeah, um, wink, wink. <laughs> uh, forbids remember you. Remember, from... we did a show. Remember, we did a show on castrati, where like this multi-century-long industry of castrating boys to make beautiful voices for the papal chapel. How that was like officially forbidden, but not really by the right. church. You know exactly. So Catholicism does ban fortune telling, tarot cards. It says all that stuff. You're just basically playing with the forces below when you engage in this stuff, which I think is untrue. Um, but there's a point there, and it's it's, just, it's that I'm called back now to that woman at three in the morning, wondering where her boyfriend is. Is that fortune telling all too often is about that. Yeah, And so uh, in a way, you use the I Ching to attain a state where fortune telling is no longer necessary. Ironically, paradoxically, yeah. the practice of the I Ching, and what I would say is the proper way, actually releases you from this need to know what's going on, this power struggle that uh, fortune telling in the common sense always kind of... Uh, elicits. And so it comes down to you. Like, what are you making of this? The, the point being that um, yeah, I find that Rutt's just bringing the war of religions into Sinology, which is not helpful to anybody. <laughs> Although I got to say, this book really is the shit. It's kind of expensive, but anybody who's a real enthusiast of the I Ching really should own a copy. Yeah. And I'm the first to say that I've completely strawmanned him because I've only heard what you read. But I think that your critique is absolutely right. And I brought it up because I thought it was a very interesting question that this is a book and 
divination maybe generally is a fascinating limit case of religion. It always seems to be a part of religion, divination does, and yet it never seems to be a comfortable part. Mm. For example, you know, when we did our tarot show or our fool card show, much of our discussion revolved around the writing in the Meditations on the Tarot, that anonymous book of 22 letters to a hypothetical friend on the 22 trumps of the tarot. I don't know if I've ever seen a deeper, a more profound work of Western esotericism than that book. That book is a breathtaking, syncretic work of occult thinking on the highest level. Hmm. And yeah. it's a book that is approved of by the highest papal authorities. Yeah, a cardinal. Yeah, yeah, as a book of authentic Catholic spirituality, a book of wisdom, and and it, 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 we should note that the author weaves in a lot of Eastern philosophy and spirituality into his text. Um, it's yeah. not just uh, sticking to the Western. No. Yeah, I yeah, it's the kind of book that if you didn't know that it was written by an individual human being, you would think there's no way one human being could possibly have written this whole thing to have known all of that stuff and w woven it together in such a way. Mm. But mm. Um, but you know that book on the one hand can be received as a great work of official Catholicism, and yet at the same time, divination has always been very disfavored, I think, by official papal proclamations and so on. I'm no expert in this, but Christians have been using the Bible as a kind of I Ching for as long as there's been a Bible. Using the Bible as a, an object of bibliomancy is a very old practice. It's not formalized in the sense that you've got coins or yarrow stocks and a sort of mathematical structure by which you can generate passages. But Anybody can use a random number generator or simply the old-fashioned method of flipping to a random page, just letting the book open where it will and finding meaning from the passage that you arrive at. I think that trying to take divination out of religion would be like trying to take the fucking out of sex. Yeah. <laughs> um about that, the, the condemnation of divination by most religious institutions combined with its complicit participation in it, has a reason. Like, I'll give you an example from my own life. Right now, my daughter Delphine, who is turning 10 soon, is obsessed with Wicca. She's reading a book on witchcraft, which is, like, not written for kids at all. Like, it's an actual book. Uh, she's an incredible reader. I'm really proud of her for having become a reader. That was, like, a big priority for me, and I was afraid that... By pushing her to read books, she would just like hate books because it's something her parents do. But no, she reads. Yay. And so she's reading this wick and she often asks me questions about how to reconcile Catholicism with Wicca. Can you see the son as a father and a brother? Because Christians say the son as a brother and the Wiccans see the son as a father. How can I be both? And questions like that, which is like, these are big questions for a nine-year-old. I try to answer her without getting into any of the... Like you know, theology. I, I, theology. Plus, I'm not going to, you know, she can be Wiccan or whatever religion she wants to be. She can find her own way. But when, she, when it comes to whether she can cast magic spells, I forbid it. I forbid it because I believe in it. And I forbid yeah. it for the same reasons that I'm for gun control. And all those chaos magicians who think the, the fucking magic should be available to anybody and anyone who has any warnings or admonitions to make about it is like uh, some kind of like patriarchal control freak. 
Mm. They should remember their own philosophy when it comes to guns, because all those chaos magicians, or at least nine out of ten of them, are for gun control. Magic spells <laughs> are guns. You put those in the hands of a child, you know, you've read the fucking Sorcerer's Apprentice, chaos will ensue. So I guess that's what chaos magicians want. Um, the, the <laughs> It's right there in the name, JF. <laughs> The the uh, I forbid her from practicing any type of magic. She, I mean, my sister in law got her a book of magic spells, many of which have to do with like shit. Shit, kids should not be involved in. Like it's this big fucking tome grimoire of magic spells from all over the world. And she's reading this, and she's like, "Okay, all I need is uh, this, that, well, and the other thing, and I can cast." If you ever the wake spell. up and find your daughter strangling you with your own intestines, don't come <laughs> crying to me, Martel. <laughs> I didn't give her the fucking book. Um, <laughs> all I can do is stop her from doing any of the of the spells in it until she's eighteen years old. Yeah, I said when you when you're old enough, because the Wicca have a rule, you can't join a coven until you're eighteen. So when you're eighteen, you can join a coven, then you can cast magic spells. Of course, I won't be able to stop her when because I cast magic spells in my teens. So that it'll happen. But it's because I believe in it that I think the admonitions and the warnings and the uh, even the forbidding is justified. Just like in Zen, you know, yeah. the makyo. Oh, yeah. Makyo oh, yeah. is a term that means you're not like, supposed to play with the makyo. But you need to believe they're real. It really yeah, says real true. as anything else. I know. And this is a big problem in Western Zen is that I feel like nobody believes in them. Everybody thinks that the makyo, the, the demons that you encounter in certain states of meditation, people think that those are just picturesque old tales of medieval Japanese monks who we know belonged to a superstitious and credulous age. And I think that that's dangerous because like, no, you will encounter makyo if you go deep enough in meditation. And when you do, if you don't believe in them, they will fuck you up. Yeah. It's like uh, Kaiser Sose says there in that Usual Suspects movie, the devil's greatest trick was to convince the world he didn't exist. Yeah. It's a flip on, on something Christians sometimes say, evangelicals like say, well, you might not believe in God, but he believes in you. Right. <laughs> you might not believe in the demons, but they believe in you. <laughs> but, and you know, but the thing is, like, I agree with you. I like what you say. You believe in of control of magic for the same reason that you believe in the control of guns. I do think that magic can be a powerful spiritual path. I would never forswear it. And I am grateful for my own experience with and encounters with magic. Right. You know, we've had this conversation before, actually, I think mostly in our Patreon shows, maybe we've had it on the flagship show, I don't remember, but would you encourage people to seek out the kind of limit experiences, the sort of strange experiences that we clearly have sought out in our own lives? I'm sometimes very vague about that, but nevertheless, listeners have probably gathered that have had some weird fucking experiences. Um, and generally, because number one, I took a vow to protect all beings as a as a Buddhist, and also because I'm an educator, and an educator is not just somebody who teaches, but it's also somebody who protects, who guides, who guides, who allows people to gain wisdom. Gaining wisdom is a dangerous game. Yeah. It's a dangerous game. And an educator is somebody who allows people to do that safely. Well, where I would want to end is by saying that the I Ching also is a great educator in exactly that sense. And 
if anybody asks me like, well, I'm kind of interested in this magic shit or, or just like curious about the kinds of things we're talking about. I've had at least one person say like, that's interesting, but it seems kind of dangerous. I'm like, yes, I think that kind of cautiousness does you credit. But if you want to engage with the weird, with an entity that to me is as trustworthy as they get, as beneficent as they get, I would encourage people to try their hand at reading the I Ching. Alistair Crowley has a great line in Magic Book Four. And again, Crowley was way ahead of his time in taking the I Ching very seriously. And he says one of the truest things anybody has ever said about it. He says, malicious or pranksome elementals instinctively avoid the austere sincerity of the figures of Fu and King Wen. And I think he's quite right. Colin Wilson said something very similar. This is from The Occult. The Chinese Book of Changes, or I Ching, is one of the most interesting and certainly one of the most accessible of these lunar knowledge systems. And he's making a distinction between lunar and solar knowledge. And he considers the tarot as another lunar knowledge system. And he continues, it is also unique in being free of harmful aspects. Close study of it can do nothing but good. And I strongly agree. Now, if yeah. we've discussed, it's possible for you to fuck your own self up with the I Ching. And I'm getting back to what I was saying before. If I were to personify the I Ching, I always imagine like a kindly, sometimes stern, like no bullshit, but uh, a kindly elder educator. Like the nice Mr. Ching who lives next door and every time I'm in trouble, he helps me out and he's incredibly generous and he never asks for anything in return. Yeah. You know, don't disrespect him and don't treat him lightly. You know, bring some cupcakes or something when you go over. He will always help you. And as a result, I think a lot of occultists think that the I Ching is scarcely occult at all. But, you know, hidden forces and shit. Come on, it's occult. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.